As issues of racial justice and equity continue to be at the forefront of our national consciousness, we're delighted to have as our speaker this morning, Mark Morial, the president and chief executive officer of the National Urban League, which is America's largest historic civil rights and urban advocacy organization. Following in the footsteps of his father, Ernest Dutch Morial, the first African-American mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Morial served as mayor of New Orleans from 1994 to 2002 as a testament to his effective stewardship of that iconic city during those years. The mayor left office with a 70% approval rating. He is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in economics and African-American studies. And he also has a law degree from Georgetown. We had a brief pre-chat on Friday and the mayor mentioned that he is no stranger to St. John's having attended President Obama's second pre-inaugural prayer service at our church in 2013. With that, please join me in welcoming back, this time virtually, Mayor Mark Morial. Thank you everyone this morning and thanks uh, to Rob and Clark and Sarah and the whole team at St. John's. Uh, this is important to do this comparison because as far as the nation has come in 100 years. The nation still, the nation still must deal with the ever pressing issues of race, gender equity, and what kind of nation we have and what will our democracy indeed be. 1920 was the year of the rise of J. Edgar Hoover who in that year organized a raid on thousands of communists and anarchists and established himself as a force in American life. And we know his abuses, uh, his abuses uh, are well known to us today. His reign began in 1920. 1920 was also the year the revitalization of the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan stated in 1920 that it dreaded Jews, it dreaded Catholics, it dreaded Asians, it dreaded Blacks, and it dreaded any European from non-Nordic countries, which at the time meant Italians and Greeks and others. 1920 was also a year of the apex of the pandemic of lynching in America between the end of Reconstruction uh, and World War II, uh, the late 1880s and the 1890s, all the way until the 1940s, 4,400 people, 4,400 people, 80% of them African-American were lynched in the United States. 1920 was also the year when mass media was born, yes, mass media. It was born when the first commercial radio station broadcast the results of the 1920 presidential election. By 1926, there were 700 commercial radio stations in the United States. And there wasn't a corner of the country that didn't have radio broadcast. 1920, was also the year when the last vestiges of black delegates 
participated in the Republican Party convention. From the Civil War until 1920, the Republican Party had been the party, the radical Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, had been the party of blacks, with black delegates serving at every Republican convention from 1868 all the way through 1920, serving on vital committees, participating in the lifeblood of that party. After 1920, there were very few, and up till the present, very few, almost no African-Americans who've been delegates to Republican national conventions. If we fast forward 100 years ago, 100 years later, rather, the continuing battles around the right to vote still occupy the front pages of American newspapers still are part of the vigorous debate that we have in the public square and are central, central to American democracy as the 2020 election unfolds. With the attacks on the Postal Service and the efforts by states all across the nation to make it more difficult for people to vote. We also, in 2020, see a Justice Department, uh, which has not fulfilled its duty and its responsibility to enforce the civil rights laws, the hard fought civil rights laws of the 1960s and the 1970s. We see a rise in hate crimes. In fact, we see an explosion in hate crimes. And while we don't have lynching in the sense of the word of 2020. We have lynching in what we saw happen to George Floyd and to too many others. Our notions of mass media have been transformed radically since 1920. Not only do we have radio and television and a continuous news cycle, we have the explosion of the information superhighway and the internet, which gives voice and an avenue for conversation to forces, not only within the United States, but all over the world, to be involved sometimes in a sinister way in the debate over public issues in our country. Not to be partisan at all, but it'll be Interesting to see how many African-American delegates are seated at the GOP convention, which begins this week. I want to share with you, against that backdrop, why 2020 is a year like no other. And while I believe 2020 brings into four, brings into play, brings into the consciousness a combination of 1919, when the Spanish flu pandemic affected the world and caused many people to lose their lives. How 2020 brings into four the 1929 
beginnings of the Great Depression as we are notwithstanding any effort to spin. We're in uncharted territory when it comes to unemployment in this country with 10% on an overall level with black and Latino unemployment edging higher than 15, moving up to 20 and with a decline in GDP and many, many Americans out of work or teetering on the edge of evictions and foreclosures. The word has not been uttered. The word depression has not been uttered, but we are teetering on an economic downturn that for many, many Americans has become a difficult and challenging set of circumstances. No job, uncertainty about whether children can safely attend school, concerns about whether the roof over their head will be taken away due to an eviction or a foreclosure, great uncertainty across the land. And, and 2020 brings into four 1968 and the racial justice uprisings of that year, the assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and the eruption of, in our cities to a great extent. So this year, 2020, is a year of tremendous challenge for American leadership. It's a challenge for people in every walk of life. It is a year of uncertainty as we think about how we move forward. Undergirding it once again is an issue that has affected this nation from its very founding. And that is the issue of race. The issue of race from the very founding of this nation, from the debates that took place at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the 1780s, all the way to the debates that take place in the Congress of the United States today, race remains a central issue and will remain a central issue until this nation, this great and mighty nation can confront its original sin and turn the corner in a meaningful way. At the National Urban League, we ask ourselves each and every year, because it's important to understand race in the context of not how we feel only, how we perceive things only, but what are the social and economic conditions that uh, we face as a nation when it comes to race. So I wanna share with you a handful of slides to help put this in some factual context and help us all understand 
that the disparities that are often talked about, what are they and how do they affect our lives? So each year, if I can invite your attention to the slides, we publish an equality index. And that equality index is designed to summarize how African-Americans and Hispanics, we have two separate index, a black index and a Hispanic index, are doing compared to whites in the areas of economics, health, education, social justice, and civic engagement. The equality index measures the share of the pie which African-Americans and Hispanics get compared to whites. So let me give you a simple example of how the index works. And when we go to the next slides, it'll put the numbers in some context. So if you would assume for the sake of our argument that uh, the average white person would live to be 100 years of age and the average black person would live to be 73 years old. Then the black index would be 73%. Now that's a hypothetical set of numbers, but it's designed to show you how the index works. So in tracking over 300 social and economic data sets, we have determined that, and these are pre-pandemic numbers, ladies and gentlemen, that the black index is at 73.8% for the year 2020, 73.8%. And while the slide doesn't show you the Hispanic Latinx index, that index is about 78%, a little bit higher, but still a great distance away. Then if you would go to the next slide, within the equality index, we measure certain categories. We measure economics and education and health and the like. I would venture to ask you, what would you believe the biggest disparities? What area are the biggest disparities in American life? Is it education? Is it health? Is it social justice, which incorporates the criminal justice system? Is it civic engagement? No, it's economics. The economic index is a lagger. It's lagged in the 55, 56% range for as long as we've been doing this index, which is for, now, for the most part, the last 15 to 16 years. So undergirding the legacy of race in America, the, the legacy of slavery and segregation, the legacy of the modern elements of discrimination and the after effects of slavery and segregation, the most dramatic effect on American life is the disparity between the average or median income of white families in the 70,000 range, black families in the 40,000 range, or the average wealth of a white family, which is 10 times greater than the average wealth of a black family. The economic 
conditions are the driver of the disparities in American life. We have health disparities, we have educational disparities, we have social justice disparities, no doubt we have a wide range of disparities. What strikes me is how little these numbers have changed on an overall basis in the last 15 years and how little they've changed since the year 2000. What we must confront uh, as uh, those, as the generation to whom the challenges of today have been charged is that when it comes to many of these challenging issues, we've not made substantial progress uh, in the 21st century. In fact, in some areas, we've lost ground. When it comes to home ownership, we have lost ground as a nation, but also the black-white gap has widened in American life. Some areas, we've seen modest improvements in high school graduation and college matriculation rates. So we don't paint a picture of just where we've not made progress. We've made limited progress in some areas. In the area of health disparities, we've made some limited progress. I owe it, uh, when we look at the index and really look at the numbers, it's modest, but it has everything to do uh, with the Affordable Care Act, which was passed 10 plus years, 10 years ago in the Congress of the United States. So I contextualize these disparities because uh, all too often what makes race difficult to discuss is we all talk about our feelings and our perceptions, and that's relevant. But I like to think we need to understand it also from a baseline of factual information. So I encourage you uh, to go to the National Urban League website at nul.org and to look at this index, and you can look at the indexes for the last several years and look at the report for the last several years as we have categorized and, and outlined these numbers. Uh, our research partners are the best uh, in the world. Uh, this information is all from Fundamental information comes from public sources. We've just tried to organize it in a way that would help people understand why these disparities exist. So what of 2020? And what does 2020 point to? And you can see uh, the Equality Index there in, in multiple categories, uh, which we like to think becomes a guidepost for those that want to identify solutions. But we've seen the disparities that this index, which these numbers are pre the pandemic, have played out. We've seen the disparities when it comes to COVID. So we have to always make the point around COVID. Yes, there are wide disparities. Black people three times as more likely to be infected, two times as more likely to die. But still the majority of those with COVID are white Americans. So COVID affects everybody. It just affects some of us more significantly and deeply. And those happen to be African-Americans, Latinos, and those who are native 
American and indigenous. So that slide actually shows you the breakdown in categories. So in real time, we have seen the impact of the downturn of the economy and its dramatic impact on black Americans and brown Americans. Why black Americans and brown Americans happen to be in more service sector jobs in, uh, or in essential jobs. So it's one hand, you're gonna work in an essential job which tends to be more dangerous, more risky. On the other hand, you may have been in a job working in a hotel or a restaurant or in a service sector where layoffs have been much more pronounced in a retail job where layoffs have been much more pronounced. And once again, the, the, the performance of unemployment in the economy during this crisis matches and that this was a predictor of how it would happen. And then we have the new awakening, which I think is a moment where there are both dark clouds and sunlight, if you will, on the horizon. And that is with respect to racial justice. George Floyd's death stimulated and a spontaneous reaction from Americans of every walk of life. It was powerful, it's been powerful to see whites and blacks and Latinx and Asians and natives. It's been powerful to see men and women and old and young, people from various political disciplines react and say enough is enough. And so we're at a crossroads in terms of whether this moment becomes a movement for change, whether we can translate the power of protest into the power of voting, into the power of meaningful public policy change and changes in business and corporate policy and behavior and changes and changes, ladies and gentlemen, because it matters in the minds, the understandings of people's hearts. I wanna tell you a personal story that is extremely uh, close to me uh, that uh, occurred recently in my life. As a uh, middle school boy in New Orleans in 1968, I started at a school where I was the first of two African-American students to attend that school. My experience there was positive, but my experience there was not without fist fights, taunting, teasing, and the use of the N-word frequently in reference to me. So about a month ago, I got a letter. And that letter came from a boy 
who attended school with me. He was an older boy, and it was a letter of apology. It was a letter which in, in paraphrasing the letter, a grown man, somewhat successful business person, who said to me that he had examined his conscience and that the Black Lives Matter movement had had a profound impact on him and that he was taking the occasion to apologize to me for bullying and taunting me when I was a 10 and 11 year old boy at this school. And I say that because he referenced in the letter that the times we live in had changed his perspective and his heart to such an extent where now some 50 years later, he would take it, on his, uh, take it up on himself to write this letter. I close because by sharing that story because we have to change policy, we have to change law, and that's a battle and work that I do every day of my life. And many of you are committed to that work. But also, we have to change the minds and the hearts of people. And where our opportunity is, is with the young. It's with the emerging generation. That their perspective on the future will, will embrace something I hold dear, and that is that the future of America is an America that is a multicultural, a multi-religious, a multi-orientation democracy built on principles of equity and equality and justice and tolerance for all. And if we can achieve that vision, it's important for us to ask ourselves, what is our vision for the future of the country? And that vision has to embrace the idea that America is multi-racial, multi-cultural, multi-religious. And how do we, within that context, because within that context, we are a nation that has never existed in humankind. Any multi-racial empire has lived and been created by the sword or by the bayonet, whether it was the Romans, the Greeks and the Ottomans who were conquerors of others in building these empires, or whether it was the British and the Spanish who plundered and killed to create vast empires. Can we create a nation in the 21st century or begin the journey or continue this, this pathway to create a multicultural nation? We're at a crossroads. We're at an intersection. We're at a time of deep introspection, choice, and action. 
and that's where we are. I'll be happy to take any questions that you have. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for that. What a powerful, powerful talk. And you ended exactly where I hoped you would. And while we wait for others to pose questions, let me, let me start the questioning. Having said what you said, are you optimistic? Are you optimistic that this I am, country will I am embrace this future? I am optimistic because I'm an eternal optimist. I am fearful and fearless that we can miss the opportunity and that we are engaging in cyclical, cyclical behavior, cyclical events. But I'm optimistic because of what I see. Uh, but what we cannot do is serve as spectators. American life can sometimes mesmerize you into a role of a spectator. If you have any degree of being comfortable in your own home, in your own life, or also being consumed by your own challenges, we can become spectators and believe, well, it doesn't really affect me and I'm not involved until it touches me. We cannot be spectators in this. We don't have a democracy if we have spectators and we have gladiators. The fundamental theory of democracy is that we're all both spectators and gladiators. Here, here, Mr. Mayor. Here's a question from uh, one of our parishioners or guests. Open dialogue and conversation are critical for progress. What can you tell us about your experience as mayor of New Orleans, a city deep with racial disparity and inclusion in opening the dialogue between the privileged and the oppressed? I've, that dialogue is uh, always difficult. When I was mayor, I, I realized that I was operating from a position of power and influence and impact. And so it meant that generally when you're the mayor of a city, you're, you're in a leadership position, you can easily get people to the table. Uh, I got, I had success, I think some success moving powerful and privileged interest in the city by pushing them privately, you know, pushing them privately and sometimes prodding them publicly. Because what I realize is sometimes you have to create, if people will work with you, an opportunity for people to feel like they, they walk away as a winner or as, as part of the solution. And that was always a delicate balance in some of the work we did. Uh, when I was working on police reform and police reimagination, you know, I had a, 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 a point of view which resonates with, 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 I think, many progressive thinkers today that you had to uh, uh, not only uh, confront violence with effective community-based policing, but you had to invest in communities, and you had to invest in children, and you had to invest in, so pulling together a coalition to do that meant taking people that thought the solution was police and law enforcement on one hand and on the other hand people in the community who thought that investments in social services alone would do it and trying to get them 
to meet in the middle where we were going to fix our police department and be more effective, but also we were going to invest in community programs and community youth-oriented programs. And so I had the power of being mayor, so I realized I could, I could bring leaders in. I could bring them in privately. I could bring them in for lunch. I could bring them in for dinner. I could kind of debate, sometimes debate issues privately. And I developed a bit of a compact with some of the leaders of the business community and who had not supported me when I ran. And it was, it was more or less a truce against unnecessary public ridicule of each other. And it was sort of like, look guys, I'm gonna work with you and we're gonna to try to find some common ground. We can always disagree publicly, but we're not gonna get anywhere if every time I come up with something you're shooting from the hip at me and I'm shooting back at you guys. So we need to have dialogue privately, right? To see if we can argue. And I had, a, I had success doing that. I realized not you know, naive or Pollyannish about it, that because I was the mayor and I held certain power, that helped me play that role. And I was willing to play that role because I wanted to push, I had to push on people to get a big win. And we ultimately were able to build a very broad coalition to do a lot of transformative work uh, by, by, by bringing people who wouldn't necessarily agree on too much together. Thank you for that, Mayor. Here's another one. One of our questioners asks this one. One of the advantages, arguably, of the 60s movement versus today is that there were specific goals that were easy to articulate. You know, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, desegregating lunch counters and other public accommodations. Ending systemic racism, obviously very, very difficult to define, much less achieve. So what would you say to that? I think, it, I think the, the questioner is right on target. Uh, but if you step away from it, I'll say a couple of things. Systemic racism lives within the institutions of American life. What are the institutions of American life? You have business and the private sector, which are important institutions because they're employers, they deploy capital. You have government. You have institutions like religion and, and denominations and churches and synagogues and mosques and temples. You have institutions like the media. So what I, I like to encourage people to think about is how do we confront systemic and institutional racism on a sector by sector basis, on an institution by institution basis. I've said to a number of business leaders with whom I've dialogued, who've expressed an interest in confront, say you have to confront your own house where you have control, you have power, you have influence. What do your hiring practices look like? What is the atmosphere or culture of your business? Uh, do people feel like they're fairly promoted? Do you have people of color and women around your boardroom table, around your executive table? Uh, you know, are you, are you, are you recruiting uh, broadly? Uh, so you have to confront it on an institution 
on an institutional level uh, and, and recognize that there is a role for public policy. Uh, and while it may not be as crystal clear as the 60s, I would offer this. A comprehensive uh, policing act by, by the Congress, uh, which sets up standards for minimum standards for policing, uh, creates a, uh, a stronger system of accountability in both the civil justice system and also the criminal justice system could go a long way to change the culture, push the culture of policing, but it's gotta be combined with actions at the local level or a broad effort because we have this wealth gap that focuses on creating home ownership opportunities for black people uh, and brown people, which recognizes that systemic racism means they can't meet down payment requirements in the same fashion. Systemic racism means that they're not gonna pass debt to income ratio tests and you've gotta use new methods to try to make the payments lower in a way that's not predatory. So I would say to the a questioner that there, yes, he's right, but that's where we need creative minds. That's where we have to understand that some of the, you know, I'll, I'll say race neutral public policy measures that we've tried over the years have not been effective and that we have to have race specific measures within a broader context. So, you know, big vision, the country needs a home ownership and a, and a housing plan. Uh, we, 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 within the context of that, a broad plan, you could create specific initiatives which are designed to increase the home ownership rate amongst African-Americans while creating opportunities for others also. I mean, that's the point. We can't have a zero-sum game mindset. So question is right, but the point is, is that we have to deconstruct. That's why dialogue and understanding. So people say, what is institutional racism? I'll point you back to that index. The fact that that index hasn't changed much is what institutional racism is. That the disparities are frozen in stone. They're frozen in ice. No matter what we do, it just seems to be stuck or whatever we've done has not been enough. And so that's what institutional racism, that's, that's the manifestation of it. Thank you, Mayor. Um, this, I think, will be our final question. That is, Thank you. one um, difference and arguable advantage of today's times vis-a-vis -vis the 60s is the increasingly multiracial nature of America, the large and growing number of Americans who themselves are biracial or multiracial. Would you comment on that, please? Yeah, I mean, I think that the young people who are from blended families of all type. And you know, it's interesting, we have blended families in the black community. So we have blended families where one parent may be black, another parent may be white, parents black, parent Hispanic, parent black, parent Asian. Then we have parent African-American and another parent Caribbean-American, 
a uh, parent, parent African American, and another parent who may be uh, 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 an African immigrant, and and I do think that it it helps broaden the perspective. Here's what we have to recognize, though: we have to beware of an America where, and this is why big vision and where the country is going is important, where all we're into is ethnic competition, right? By that I mean, we have to embrace the idea that we can all be, and my analogy, I've written a book on this called the Gumbo Coalition, uh, is that we can be, you know, within gumbo, there's various ingredients. The ingredients don't stop being the ingredient. But when they come together, they create a single dish called gumbo. And that's really why we need leadership in the country that can help articulate what's this vision for the future? What of this multiculturalism? So I think the fact that you've got, uh, you know, young people, it's interesting to watch the young people of today. You know, they're all listening to the similar, mu similar music. Uh, they, to some extent, wear the same wardrobes and clothes, regardless of uh, race to an extent. Uh, and, and I think that that cultural, if you will, uh, 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 melding that we see uh, bodes well if they maintain their commitment that I feel we see with young people of, uh, of being civically engaged, uh, caring about issues, uh, wanting to be change agents. Uh, we need that from young people. We need them to push. We need them to protest. We need them to vote. You know, we need them to be a voice in the public square. We need them. Young people changed this country in the 1960s. On one hand, you had civil rights. You know, the civil rights movement was led by a 34-year-old Martin King, a 21-year-old John Lewis, a 40-year-old Whitney Young, uh, uh, a lot of young people were central to the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the Vietnam protest movement, uh, the women's equality movement and quote, quote unquote liberation movement, led by young people, led by young people. And they pushed the nation and they pushed the nation. And as a result, the nation pushed ahead. We need them again. Here, here, Mr. Mayor, we cannot thank you enough for spending these moments Thanks, with us. And we can't wait for you to be able to visit us in person at St. John's in we the near future. We look forward to worshiping with you. And thank you everyone this morning. And thanks uh, to Rob and Clark and Sarah and the whole team at St. John's. Uh, I'm honored to be with everyone. Have a great Sunday. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Our next speaker will be on September 13. And that speaker will be John Barry the author of The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us and happy Sunday.